Welcome to a special edition of the Tiskin Podcast. This is a one-on-one interview with Justin Curtis. Uh, he was your 15th overall finisher at LVO uh, this year, and he is one of the top 40K players in the world right now. Uh, he was also your 2018 Thousand Suns champion. Um, he runs a very interesting list, and there's a lot that you can take away from this interview. Um, he, he does a great job going into a lot of detail about the intricacies of what playing uh, at the top tables is like, um, some of the aspects of his list that try to make it tough for opponents to know what to do against them. So with that, let's jump right in. Justin, how you doing? I'm doing good. So, uh, so how was LVO for you? Pretty sounds like it was pretty good, yeah. Vegas was great. Uh, this was, I think, my third. I I always forget because I skipped a year of Nova, but I think this is my third Vegas. Uh, I'm getting accustomed to it finally. I I was excited to see how uh, 600 people was going to look. <laughs> I guess we ended up at like 664. I think was the official number. So yeah, it, it's getting a little out of hand, but in a good way. Yeah, it was pretty impressive when you stepped into that back hall and you just saw the sheer number of tables that were there. Was, uh... Yeah, I know you said this was your first one. Last year, we played at, I think, just under five, which was still nuts. Uh, I think we played at 480 last year. So when Reese and them started coming out saying 800 was the sign-up number this year, <laughs> a lot of us were trying to figure out how we would fit in that hall because we've accustomed to using 90% of that hall and they would have like 20 or 30 tables up front for Sigmar and 30K. And we thought if they actually hit the numbers that they were saying, we might have to roll over into the vendor hall. But I always told people I would have been shocked if it actually played at 700, even if there were 800 signups. And that's about where we ended up. So we actually finally did fit into the hall, but just barely. Yeah, very cool. It was uh, it was good to see just how many people were there and, and just the, the amount of, to imagine the amount of work they had to go through just to get the terrain ready. It's uh yeah they uh, my understanding was that uh another event got canceled at the last minute i think they were going to do like a narrative event or something and they cannibalized some of the tables and terrain from that so it wasn't quite as bad as it could have been but uh yeah it's always amazing to see what they pull off so uh just kind of getting into a little bit like how your event went um obviously you did really good i mean you you were i think you placed uh top 20 uh, yeah, I think I ended up 15th, I want to say. I I was just out of the 12 that got to play for the bonus round. And so your matches overall, I think even going into uh, your, I think you lost, was it the last one or? I lost the very last one. I was, I was actually number one seed after five rounds. I was first out of 660 people after five rounds. Um, and uh, I lost that that sixth round and if I had won the sixth round even scores be damned if I had won the sixth round I would have been number one seed in top eight because me and uh, me and Michael were both pretty far ahead of the field that's incredible man you got to be pretty pretty uh, oh yeah I was still very very excited I uh, will go through the games here shortly but uh, it's hard to hard to be disappointed I I actually when I say that I I know for a fact I would have been number one seed whichever of me and Michael won that game because even after losing that game I had more battle points than everyone in the top eight. <laughs> I still had more points than Michael. I, I had, uh, I actually only had less battle points than two people in the entire field after six rounds. And that was uh, Trent and somebody else. Uh, uh, I, I feel bad that I can't remember. It was a Chaos Space Marine player whose name I'm supposed to know. Um, but Trent and a Chaos Space Marine player were above me in 13th and 14th. 
and then the top 12. Um, basically, the people with one loss each had more points, but there was only three of us. That's very cool. Um, so one of the things that I think a lot of people would probably be interested in knowing is kind of what goes into you know, preparing yourself for that kind of event. And it's probably different when it's like your first time going there and you don't even know what you're walking into versus, you know, for you, you're going in and you know, hey, you know, I have a chance here. I'm going to be playing against some of the best here and the top eight. Um, you know, what do you kind of take us through a little bit? Like what, what do you do to kind of prepare, you know, practice? Like how do you know you're ready for this? Yeah, so, and this is actually something, and you'll probably mention it here later as well, but uh, I, I just became aware that uh, you run the Thousand Suns Reddit. Um, I did an AMA on the Reddit a few days ago, and we got a lot of awesome questions, but that was one of the things we got was I talked a lot about how I changed the list for orcs, and then somebody mentioned, oh, well, there was only 5 or 8%. He threw out some number. There was only this many orc players anyways, so why did you bother? And when you go in expecting to have a chance to win, there you you basically end up planning for a very small list of people you go in saying what if i have to play nick nonavati you go in saying what if i have to play andre gagno what if i have to play brandon grant like you you know what those people are playing and you have to have some idea of what you will do if you play against them because if you have no chance against those lists then you don't really have a chance to win um i took orcs into consideration because pamprine and nonavati we're both playing them. And then you expect, uh, especially with Nick now having his website and everything in his coaching service, when Nick comes out a month early and says, this is what I'm playing, here's my list, you expect there to be a lot of copycats. It didn't happen as much as it usually does, to be honest. Um, my internal reasoning for that is probably because it's a lot of effort to paint 200 orcs in a month. Um, we used to see, like, when Grey Knights were the thing in 5th edition, like, everybody showed up with a great night army because it was like 30 models like it was easy even the night meta recently was pretty easy to get ready but uh, there weren't as many copycats but still you have to be ready to play orcs because if you make top eight you would probably have to play pamphrine or Nadavati. now they both bombed out in the fifth and sixth rounds like i did so it didn't end up that way but when you're going in you have to have that in the back of your mind you have to think what if i'm going to play these guys now, based on speaking of orcs, now based on the, um, the you know the the hype that going in there, do you think the hype was, um, I guess, justified for for how they did? And do you think uh, I know in Nanavati's match, he was probably, um, you know, I, we don't need to get into the details, but I, I know there was probably like the there's some controversy around like the um, either the take back or whatever, which was great sportsmanship on on Nanavati's oh. part, um, but. Um, if you think about it from like the turnout there, he could have won that match, which. Oh yeah. Which, and know, he was shocked to be honest. He, he was shocked that he was as close in that game as he thought, because I talked to him a couple times before Vegas and he had already determined he had no chance against Harrison's list. <laughs> he, he knew from the ground up that list was built to beat orcs and he had very little chance to interact with it other than with his Ludas and his Ludas are probably going to get killed turn one, turn two. Right. Uh, he actually told me he needed me to play Alex Harrison beforehand because he thought my list should beat Alex's. Yeah. He was like, I need you to get matched against Harrison before I do. And then literally we played those games next to each other. I was playing a Dark Eldar player that round and he was playing Harrison next to me. And he said, he told me if I had scored two more points the prior round, I would have had to play Harrison and it all would have worked out perfectly for him. Oh, man. <laughs> so, uh, so how uh so speaking of those games when, when you're going into you know you've got your next match right and it comes up 
do you kind of have an idea when you're walking up to the table, like, I know what the secondaries are that I'm going to be taking, you know, I've already looked on BCP, I can, I can see what the list is, like, you have it in your mind, what you're going to do, or um, do you kind of, do you, you kind of, like, how much planning ahead actually happens there when you're, before you're walking up to the table? I'm more of a list person, uh, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I'm usually going over their list a thousand times. Uh, I, I am admittedly terrible at ITC secondaries. I have cost myself games by picking the wrong ones. Um, I should practice with them more than I do, or maybe against certain things more than I do. I'm the person who usually takes the one really obvious one and then picks old school because I'm lazy and then just flips a coin for the third one practically against certain lists, Eldar being the worst sometimes. Like, Eldar, it's miserable picking secondaries against. Um, yeah. yeah, but I'm, I'm usually the person going over lists on the way to the table. Like, I, I want to know top to bottom what they have um, in case there's anything small that I have to look up on the way. Like, I'm, I'm a pretty huge rules nerd. I judge a lot of these. Um, I, I know my way around the rules better than most people, I would say. So I want to stare at their list on the way to the table to see if there's anything that I need to grab at the last second to make sure nothing surprises me. So I've heard some people tell me before um, that the playing at the competitive level becomes more about knowing the other armies and what they do than really knowing your army really well, um, because that just kind of becomes like an assumption. Um, yeah. Say that that kind of suggestion holds true. Absolutely. And especially the, like, I always tell people, I, I take it upon myself because I judge a lot of these to know virtually everything that I possibly can, but you can usually get away even at the top tier competitively with just knowing the other three or four meta armies of the, of the time. And then most people's armies will be that for 90%. And then you fill in the 10% gap when you get to the table. Like most people will be pretty open with you. If you show up and you say, Hey, I've never played against Valhall and Guard before. Can you walk me through what's their strategy and what's their chapter tactic real quick? And that's really all you need to know. Like, that's, the meta is the most of it. And I always tell people, like, it's, it's funny to me because I've known Nanavati for a very long time. Like, uh, when I did ETC a couple years ago, I roomed with him. Like, we've been buddies for a while. I thought it's funny that he's become, like, an internet sensation now and everybody takes his word for everything because he's a nightmare when it comes to the rules like he makes <laughs> rules mistakes like a madman outside of that 20 percent that's relevant to the meta that he knows like the back of his hand but if you get outside of that he's just completely lost and fucking in the wilderness and i'm like <laughs> i'm hand, hand holding him through it i'm like no that's not how any of this works but now he's the uh he's the internet's go-to and we we have fun with that we're like everybody mm. actually believes you in this stuff now <laughs> So, so when you do, let's say you do, um, uh, you know, going back to the, uh, the secondaries and stuff, let's say you do uh, kind of pick the wrong one and you kind of realize it halfway through, or let's say you, you know, you realize you misplayed something, kind of how, how do you handle that? Well, the one, the one upside, and it's probably the reason I get away with it as much as I do with my army, um, the, the thing with playing the Primarchs, which is all I've played in this edition, is there actually aren't that very many close games. I, I don't have KG Eldar versus Knight Meta. Let's outlast each other and play on seven like Harrison and, uh, and uh, Brandon Grant did. My games are usually over on turn two or turn three. <laughs> like one of us is tabled by then. Right. So I, I say that I've cost myself games picking wrong secondaries. I, honestly, that's probably more test games. I can't think of a big game where I've had that come up because most games with both Primarchs are blowouts one way or the other. Um, I've had situations where I've had to adjust towards the end of the game, like my game against uh, Snyder, where 
I was getting blown out and trying to dig for points at the last second. Um, that was, uh, I was trying to dig for some headhunter points and that's the kind of game where I did have to make those adjustments. Like I literally was just ignoring the objectives on turn four and turn five, trying to dig out a platoon commander to get one more headhunter point because I wasn't going to hold more. I was going to hold one no matter what. So out of the six objectives on the table, only one of them is relevant to me and I've got that one. Nothing else matters. Board control doesn't matter. Let's throw units away trying to kill a guard platoon commander, like a 30-point model. But sometimes that's what you have to do. Right. Um, so kind of getting into your matches a little bit then. Um, you know, what, which one stood out to you as, like, the match that you, you felt the greatest about, like, how you, how you played? Uh, my round, uh, honestly, the game I lost, I thought I played really well, uh, honestly, against Snyder. And that's probably the one we'll go into the deepest here. Um, I, to walk through them all real quick, I, I jinxed the hell out of myself the night before Vegas. I was talking to a buddy of mine and he was complaining about his matchups the year before or something. And I was like, oh, well, I've never actually had to play anyone that I know well in the early rounds of Vegas because there's so many people here. It's so unlikely. So immediately <laughs> I get paired against uh, my friend Gareth, who was actually staying with my buddy, Tony. Like we'd been hanging out the night before we all went out to a bar and then I show up the next morning and I'm playing Gareth in round one. And he's also a good player playing one of my worst matchups, which is Double Spear Eldar. Like, I was, I was so glad that Double Spear Eldar kind of went away there for a while around Nova because everybody was afraid of the Knights and the Spears don't do great against the Knights and blah, 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 and Blood Angel Captains and all that. And then I show up day one at Vegas, have to play one of my worst matchups and one of my friends. Um, he has not played much for the last 18 months, though. Uh, I won that match mostly on him being unfamiliar with how to play in the meta right now. I also got first turn, which is enormous in that matchup. Uh, he didn't deploy perfectly, so that made that one a lot easier than it normally is. And then, of course, round two, I then also play somebody I know, uh, Eric Trock from Beast Coast. Uh, Eric Scrivens is how most people would know him. Uh, but he is playing foot-based, kind of a meta breaker army, foot-based uh, custodes, like pure custodes oh, yeah. on foot. And it's designed to annoy orcs because it's all two-up armor, all multiple wound. It annoys Eldar. It literally cannot beat my army. Like, we showed up, and he was so upset. And I'm like, hey, we finally get to play. You have no chance to win this game because I could literally just put Mortarian and Armin on the board and play against his 2,000 points and probably be fine. Like, that's not a game he can win, which is a real bummer for him. Um, I'm trying to think of my, my third round... Let me pull it up. I have, B, I have uh, in front of me. Okay, third round was a uh, Venom Spam. That was actually an interesting one. Uh, the problem with the, the changes I made to my list right before Vegas to account for Orcs, which was to put in the, uh, the Death Shroud Terminators, make me so much better against Venom Spam than I normally would be. Like, I don't normally want to be rolling probably 80, I would say, armor saves on Mortarian in a turn, but when the Death Shroud are tanking for him, it's suddenly no longer a problem. Um, so that, that made that a whole lot easier. Uh, that gets me through my day one. Um, that, that was a, that was a longer matchup. Like that one we played through to the end compared to my first two games, but I, I can't remember. He picked a bad secondary. Um, I want to say it was recon, um, where he just never got across the board. Like he, he had one flyer, I think, and the flyer was zooming around in the background, but he could never get to the other corner. And at the end of the game, he had zero on it. And I think I won by 10. But if he had picked a better secondary, it would have been a very, very close game. But, yeah, that's, that's my day one, if there was anything you wanted to interject. No, I was just going to say, it sounds like it, that's kind of a – recon's probably a tough one against your list because you know you're, 
you pretty much know looking at your you know mortarian and the bloodthirster you're coming towards me so exactly yeah the bloodthirster in particular makes it hard for people to get to my backfield turn one unless they just blow him up which is honestly usually a good thing for me but uh it's hard to advance on me when the bloodthirster is just there because you'll give him value normally people have to fall away from me turn one so that the bloodthirster doesn't gain value immediately because he's the guy who can't be warp time so if you fall away you gain a turn of delaying on him but you also are losing board control, which is one of the ways he helped me more than he maybe should have. So on uh, day two, those were kind of when the, the pressure starts ramping up, right? Because you're, you're three. Yeah. Day, day two is always interesting because you, you get your pairing so early, so everybody spends dinner that night just freaking out about their pairing for the next day. Because <laughs> with, like I said, with 600 people, like most of the, the top-end players are still undefeated. Like, I, of the, like, five guys I went with, I think four of us were still undefeated. So everyone's stressing out about their pairing the next day. Everybody's, like, texting people who play similar armies. They're like, what would you do against this? Like, it's, it's the, like, research night. And I was playing against uh, – I told the guy it's the army I would play in my dreams because he was literally just playing big monsters. He was playing Magnus and Mortarian and a Bloodthirster and a Lord of Change and Fate Weaver. It's monster, I was man. like, I was like, that is the coolest army ever. I wish I could believe in that, but like Eldar and Knights would pick that army up in two turns and you wouldn't really get to play a game, but it is such a cool army. Um, to be honest, I, I sat down with the guy because chaos mirror matches are always weird. Uh, and I told him, I asked him if he'd ever played the Primarch mirror match because realistically the Primarchs are what's relevant in that match. And even though I'm not playing Magnus anymore, like I still have the Bloodthirster, blah, blah, it's similar. Uh, and he said, no, nobody else he knows plays it. And I told him at that point, I was like, that's not a good thing. This is an experience game and it's, you're going to feel it by the end. And I've, I've told everyone that. And I, I feel like I'm maybe one of a handful of people who have played that matchup more than once, the Primarch on Primarch game. Um, and I always have that conversation with the opponent when I sit down. I'm like, have you ever done this before? Because it's going to get weird. And if not, you're going to learn some things. Right. And I what I – Oh, go ahead. I have an advantage, though, if I'm thinking about it, though, with, like, Magnus. Because straight up damage-wise, uh, you've got the sweeping attacks on both your Bloodthirster and Mortarian. You've got a little bit better tanking where you can you can swap stuff off onto the, um, uh, the Terminators. But – you know, Magnus, I would imagine, is actually a pretty good thing for him to have in that battle, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Magnus gives him a huge upside. I actually, uh, I, I got a text from Nanavati that night saying, how do you beat that army? Because what I'm playing with two of, basically Mortarian and uh, the Bloodthirster, he has five of. <laughs> like, if we just go to the middle and we slam our monsters into each other, he wins by a mile. Right. Um. The, the thing was, and the guy, again, the guy was a super good player. He's a super nice guy. I think his name was Camden. Uh, it was just an outplay. Like, I, I had more experience in that matchup. And what happened was, um, and I, I told him this after the game, and I'll give away one of the secrets here. The Usually, whoever commits Magnus first, and again, I don't have Magnus, but we'll just say a Primarch first, usually loses. That is usually how that goes, which is insane, because normally in every other matchup in the entire world, you have to throw a Primarch across the board turn one. That's all the army does. Either Magnus or Mortarian fly across the board and they punch something turn one because that's all the army does. That's You have to do that. But the, the flip in it of the mirror, the flip side is whoever commits a Primarch first gives away the advantage on Deny the Witch and on Smite. So if your Magnus flies across the board and tries to kill my Magnus or my Mortarian, 
even if things go perfectly, let's say you get warp time off, you get death hex off. If you get warp time off, you're stranded to the middle of the board. If you, sorry, if you fail warp time, you're stranded in the middle of the board and you're screwed either way. If you get across the board, you also have to get warp time off, or sorry, death hex. You have to get death hex off because without death hex, the primarchs do not hurt each other. They just bump into each other and they slap fight. Like a Magnus hitting another Magnus, he's going to hit about seven times. We'll say he wounds about six times. We'll say he gets all three through. Maybe most likely a reroll is going to undo one of those, but we'll say he gets all three through. Great, you did half of the other Magnus's damage, and now you're getting assaulted by everything and eating probably eight smites. Like, you lose if you send a Primarch first, because the other downside is giving away the deny benefit is if you send a Magnus into me, I've got Traditionally, I would have my Magnus, but in this case, I have Armin. I have uh, the plus one uh, normally, sorry, I normally have the plus two from Magnus and the plus one from Armin, but I have, we're going to say, 10 denies sitting in my backfield. Um, then when I am casting smites on you on my turn, you're just going to have Magnus's three denies. So yeah, you'll block three of them, but he's still going to be crippled by the time the psychic phase is over. And if I get my death hex off, nothing else matters. So it's, it's honestly real bad to be the first one to send a Primarch in that game. So what I did is I, I actively set a trap for it. I deployed my, uh, my Brimstone screen, because that's all I screen with in the army is Brimstones. That was also all that he had, which was funny. Um, I screened out Mortarium with Brimstones, but obviously left enough space the, so that somebody could assault through the screen. Like, they were max coherency on either side of Mortarian's base. Kind of like the side thing, go here. Exactly. And he, he literally asked me during his turn one, he's like, I just want to be clear on the measurements. It looks like I can assault Mortarian. And I'm like, oh no, you can. It looks like it. Oh, well. <laughs> and then, of course, he sends his Magnus up to midfield. Um, he, uh, I, I also did kind of a second level of psychological game here, where it, which is one of the things I miss about 7th edition, was the psychological games of the psychic phase, of how to use your deny dice and what order to do things in. So I like when you can find those little psychological edges. Um, what he did was uh, he got his warp time, he moves up, and then I wasted all my denies on purpose. I did not want to have a deny for his death hex. And then, oh no, I forgot. Uh, because I knew in the back of my head I was going to spawn trap him, which if you're not familiar with is you can use flesh change on one of your infantry characters to create a chaos spawn with no minimum distance. There is not a minimum distance on that, and it is at the end, or is at the beginning of any phase. Right. So once he has warp timed his Magnus up to my face, I have a sorcerer standing there. Magnus officially can no longer charge because at the beginning of his charge phase, I'm going to drop a chaos spawn into base contact with Magnus. I've done that to some of the best players in the world. People do not know that it exists until it happens to them traditionally. Uh, I think the, the best case was I got Brad Chester at ATC that, or at, uh, yeah, at ATC this year. And then b right before their flight out to EDC and they won this year, I was very proud of those guys. Uh, he called me and he was like, please tell me if there's any other tricks because I'm playing that army. <laughs> he was like, please walk me through any other weird thousand sun stuff I can do. Uh, but yeah, so I just, I, I wasted my, my denies on purpose to guarantee he would warp time and guarantee he would get the death X off to know that he would go into my trap on Mortarian and then I dropped the Chaos Spawn on him. So effectively, what he got for Magnus was my Chaos Sorcerer, right. which is not a fair trade. Um, yeah. the, the one mistake he made was uh, going in, my, my original game plan was if he plays perfectly, I'm in a bad spot, and what has to win me the game is the Xangors. Because the only thing he has to clear hordes is the Sweep Attack on the Bloodthirster and the Sweep Attack on Mortarian. 
he doubled down on sending them both to the same flank. So that was the one big mistake he made, other than falling into my Mortarian Chaos Bond trap. Um, Mortarian and the Bloodthirster were on the same flank, so I got to send in Zangors on his empty flank on turn two, uh, and then it was pretty actively downhill from there. And are the Zangors really just to kind of tie them up, um, or are you? did they actually do pretty good work uh, against them? The uh, the Zangors basically are immune to damage from Fate Weaver and the Lord of Change because they only have five and six attacks each, I believe. So yeah. best case scenario, they're killing like three Zangors because both those models also only hit on threes. They're not great in close combat. They're kind of uh, a bad approximation of Magnus's psychic abilities for half the points, which is great. Uh, I tested Fate Weaver before Vegas. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not going to kill 30 Zangors. So right. I sent over all the Zangors, and the big thing was it was getting me the bonus point every turn. I was holding his backfield objective and just holding up his Lord of Change um, and keeping it out of the game, and the Bloodthirster and Mortarian weren't close enough to assist at that point. I thought the, uh, the, the, the strategy you did with the Sorcerer was brilliant because you, you basically, you would have had to have put the Sorcerer just kind of dangling, would have had to be six inches away, right, from where you yep. thought Magnus the was... The threat range is eight and a half inches effectively because it is a six inch range and then an inch and a half base. And then you have to be within an inch. Yeah. Um, I, I, the guy was actually super nice to me because somebody stole my chaos spawn. <laughs> like my <laughs> chaos spawn went missing after day one and I went to pull it out of the bag and I was like, do you care if I just use a 40 millimeter base? I have one in here. And he was like, yeah, go ahead. Like he could have been like, no. And then the game goes very differently, but he was super nice about it. But yeah, the, the thing that, Basically, after ATC, and I, I kind of unveiled that strategy at ATC. I'd never seen anyone do it beforehand. Um, I did it to, again, some of the best players in the world. I did it in the Primark Mirror Match at ATC as well, which was even crazier. The guy came up on me with his Magnus and his Mortarian, literally in base-to-base -base with each other. I got both of them with one Chaos spawn. <laughs> he was oh, a little man. upset. Um, so, yeah, and I told myself after ATC, I was like, I can never do this again. Like, the cat is out of the bag. People know about this. It is planned for. I'll go back to... Instead of sorcerers, I'll go back to Demon Prince, Armin on disc like I used to. But uh, the thing that changed my mind was the change in numbers. What you were just describing, I think you were going to get to the same point, is I normally have the sorcerer, when it's relevant, right behind Mortarian. You're looking at a eight and a half inch threat range. But the, the thing that it changes is in matchups where people want to come at me, like Gene Stealers or Shining Spears, things that can come at me turn one reliably, um, it changes the math so much because instead of Gene Steelers moving 60 inches or I'm going to say Shining Spears moving 8,000 inches, whatever their actual movement is, and being on my face making a zero-inch charge, even if someone is aware of the trick, I'm pushing them back eight and a half inches. They're looking at an eight or nine-inch charge instead of a zero-inch charge, which is not reliable. So I actually ended up keeping it because of the effect it has on the math of these turn one charges when it's relevant, even if people know that it's happening. And if they don't know if it's happening, I probably just win. Well, I just think from a from a, an opponent's standpoint, even trying to keep track of those little tricks that you know oh, yeah. that, that they can do, even if I I'm aware of it, I can still see trying to look at the, the imagine the deployment you had. And being able to connect the dots, even that is still a very hard thing to be able to do. I, I have a, a very relevant uh, 
example of that because and again it's it, it just adds another thing that people have to think about when they're moving and you're on a clock and there's so much going on and you're right. you're trying to keep the score in mind uh, at atc uh, i was playing against a tau player in i think the third round and i used it in an entirely different way which was he brought uh, I, it was one of these forge world suits i can't remember that, which one it was but he brought a Forge World suit, and it, it was the one that acts as a flyer. I can't remember which it's like the Yaivarha or something. It moved like, yeah, thank you. It moved like 60 inches, and it rolled up right next to Armin, and it was just going to annihilate Armin. Mm-hmm. So what I did was my sorcerer, who was on the other side of Armin, turns into a Chaos Spawn, and there happened to be like a ruin there. So I put the Chaos Spawn in the bottom floor of the ruin, which is now closer to that suit than the suit was to Armin. The suit can oh. no longer shoot Armin because of the, the character rules. And it could not shoot the spawn because the spawn was out of line of sight in the ruin. I was real proud of that one. I've used it like that one other time just to basically override the character rules with the positioning. That one, I like that one when it works out. It's really fun when you do get it to work. Uh, I've used it more situational. I think you, you've been much more strategic with it, but... In, in my past, I've been able to look at like a situation where, oh, geez, my warlord's dead to rights, but I've got this other guy here that can, you know, put the spawn within one of this knight gallant that's about to charge <laughs> something. And, you know, it's just, it's great. Like, okay, spawn, just go hold that guy up a turn. Yeah. And I feel like everybody forgot about it because, I mean, when you flip through the codex, like on day one, you're like, ooh, the Thousand Suns Codex, let's read through it, blah, blah, blah. You go, why would I ever want to kill one of my characters? That's 100 points. And then you close the book <laughs> and you never think about it ever again. Right. Uh, so in terms of the other matches you had there, so, um, you know, just kind of trying to wrap up LVO a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, so my, uh, yeah. my, my round five was, uh, Dark Eldar with two units of eight grotesques. And that guy was familiar enough with the matchup that he was disappointed in having to play me because eight, a unit of eight grotesques is borderline unkillable in this meta. Like, nothing wants to try to kill eight grotesques with a four-up invul and the six-up feel-no-pain and the magic number of four wounds. You never want to have three wounds. You want to have four wounds. Like, that is so miserable to try to kill for every army right now unless you're Mortarian or you're a best-of-2d6 damage bloodthirster. Like, the guy, I, I don't imagine he had lost all 16 of those grotesques in probably 100 games, at least unless he's getting tabled. And all 16 grotesques were dead on turn two because it's death hex. Mortarian goes in, he kills a unit. Mortarian dies in return to the entire shooting of his army. Next turn, you death hex the other unit, the bloodthirster goes in, and that unit's dead. Like nothing else in the game puts out that level of violence to that unit. And I, he knew that it was going to be bad. He played it super well, though. He also had a Harlequin, uh, like a big vanguard attachment of harlequins not just the uh, the haywire bikes most people take he had the haywire bikes but he also had uh three death jesters which are great against me because of the character sniping and the all the extra wounds they put out on uh, on my zangors which are normally great against eldar uh, the death jesters like if they do one wound they do d3 more mortals to infantry and all this other nonsense and they snipe characters we talked through it after the game and it would have been closer if he had used them on armin earlier than he did he chose to go double down on making sure Mortarian died when he, in my opinion, had more than enough to finish off Mortarian in the assault phase. But uh, he doubled down on killing Mortarian with them and let Armin live. And then Armin got off like three more relevant warp times that game. So it could have gone a little differently. But again, that was a very, very bad matchup for him. 
And so the, it, do the smites really that matter all that much when you're, you know, the nice thing about those is they carry over from, you know, model to model. Was smite something that was just kind of anecdotal in your match, uh, like against the grotesques? Yeah, I I don't know if I I honestly can't remember if I cast a smite that game. I I probably did, but it was like backfield stuff. I I'm almost certain I did not cast a smite on the grotesques. And my army's not really built to spam smite anyways, especially now that I no longer have Magnus. Right. I I have Armin in the midfield. I have Mortarian upfield, and then I have my foot sorcerer and those rando Nurgle dudes in the backfield that are maybe smiting some rangers here and there, but. I, I always tell people, even when I was playing Magnus, I, I think at the top end, my sorcerer account was nine. And that's when I was playing Magnus, three foot sorcerers, a demon prince, Armin. Like, I had a lot. And I still did not see it as a smite spam army. I, I've always told people that smite is overvalued because our other psychic powers have a lot of value. And also, when you get to the very, very, very elite top end, it's so rare to get off an important smite other than on a model like Magnus who can just go to where he needs to be and drop a bomb of mortal wounds on somebody. It's very, very hard to get off an important smite because the movement is so tight at that level. Like there's always going to be 10 guardsmen in front of you in the psychic phase. Like you'll kill 20 this turn and then 20 more will walk up and make sure they have all the angles to block your smites the following turn. Like I played my, my gauntlet run at Nova when I went through the ringer at Nova this year, on day two, I played Tony Kopak, Nick Notavati, uh, Brandon Grant, Andrew Gagno. That was my day two at Nova. And, like, you just don't get off meaningful smites against those players. Like, they won't allow it because they've played against it for so long. That's the one mechanic that's been with us the entire edition. So they always know, hey, his shooting phase is basically irrelevant. But even if it wasn't irrelevant – that won't happen until after the psychic phase. So all I've got to make sure is that there are some dudes in the way between now and then. So it's, it's smite is overvalued at that level. It just never works out the way you'd expect. Yeah. I ran for most of uh, this past year. I ran a list where I was basically smite spamming behind a bunch of plague bearers mm -hmm. and, and it worked pretty good until I ran into um, actually my, my playing partner who, was able to pretty much defeat my entire army with one Kalexis or one Kalexis <laughs> Yeah, and you realize, well, this is a major flaw. I can't, I can't get around that guy. Yeah, that was I. One time before the character rules changed, I had to play against the Assassin Army, like the the meme yeah. from last year, where it was like, I think it was eighteen Kalexis and like twelve <laughs> Eversores or something. I had to play against it once, and I was like, this is not fun. But yeah, I'm I'm hoping they don't come back now that they have new rules. It look, didn't look like the Kalexis got much better, but I'm I'm con always concerned when Kalexis get buffed in any way. So uh, so game six for you uh, was I think was that with, that was the match where uh, that was your loss, right? Yes, uh, round six is the final round before the cutoff for top eight, which is now where I've lost both of the last two years. Right. Um, the uh that that recap mostly will consist of me complaining and if it sounds a little salty i would like to preface that by saying michael agrees with everything i'm about to say <laughs> he knows that this went a little his way um a lot of mathematical impossibilities happened in that game and it's best to start at the end which is uh, uh and most people are familiar with this i don't think this just happens at the top end but a lot of times even if you're not close on time people will talk through the final turn. You'll, you'll go, okay, 
that's going to happen, that's going to happen, that's going to happen. We'll say that happens and this happens. Let's count up the score, see if we need to play at the final turn. That's right. pretty common. So me and Michael did that after, again, a mathematical dumpster fire of a game. We went, we went through all that, and then we said, oh, my God, it's a tie. We have to play out the final turn. So even after everything went wrong, it was still a tie. And then when we did the final turn and all those things that we were like, well, that's going to happen, that's going to happen, again, the dice went cold, and none of that stuff happened, and I lost by one point. So we'll, we'll go back to the top here. Um, I'm playing in Snyder, who's playing um, basically the normal guard Castellan list. Um, there's a couple things to point out up front. The first is he's playing Valhallans, which nobody else does. Um, Valhallans can shoot into combat with their special order, which he can use to kill his own models to get out of blocks. Uh, that's basically the entire reason to do it, and it's actually a very smart thing to do, um, especially if you're concerned about orcs, like a lot of people were, because orcs are just going to bog guard all day. Uh, he does a really cool thing where he moves his mortars on purpose, because the way it works is they can fire into combat, but on ones, they hit their own models. Uh, so he moves his mortars on purpose so that they'll have minus one to hit. So then his ones and his twos are hitting his own models, and he can unbog himself. Exactly. So that's really cool. Other than that, it's the normal Castellan list with the caveat always being, well, what's their assault unit? Uh, the three options are Blood Angel Captains, cast, or Custodes, Bite Captains, or Bulgrins. He was doing the Custodes version which is by far the worst version against me. And I mean that in good for me, because Cascodes do nothing to Mortarion. They basically just bounce off of him and maybe do a couple wounds. So I always tell people that that one choice, which of the three assault units they use, decides everything about this matchup in a vacuum. Because against Custodes captains, I'd say I probably have a 70% chance to win that game against anyone in the world. Against Blood Angel captains, it's probably a coin flip, and against Bulgrins, I probably lose 70% of the time. Bulgrins are the best, and it's funny because uh, I actually talked to Grant about it because I, I beat Grant at Nova. He said he put those Bulgrins in because of what I did to him with Mortarian and Magnus. <laughs> he switched to Bulgrins after our game because they are a wall, and the, the amazing amount that – well, first off, if you don't get Death Hex off, you don't kill any Bulgrins. Like, they just stand there and laugh at you. Um, the other thing is it's a one-unit solution. The Blood Angel Captains are less of that, which is why they're okay. The Custodes Captains are not a one-unit solution to a Primarch. They need all three of them, and even then they're probably not going to kill them. But the problem with any time you need more than one unit to kill a Primarch is you're not going to kill that Primarch. Because the first one will go, and then you'll interrupt and kill the other ones, because that's how interrupt works. So if you send three Custodes Captains into Mortarion, it's identical to sending one. It will do very little, and then the other two will die. So going in, I'm feeling great. Again, I can't bog him because of his Valhallen trick, but that's not always necessary in that matchup. It's great to have the option, but uh, Mortarian will usually deal with the captains and then get through or at least clear the space for the Bloodthirster and the, the Skull Reaver Prince. Um, instead, what happened was he seized on me, <laughs> which, again, that happens. Uh, sometimes you just don't go first, but that's why I have the, uh, the Death Shroud Terminators. That was the entire purpose was... Mortarian should live through Alpha Strikes with the Death Shroud Terminators. And against the uh, Castellan, he should actually be relatively healthy because uh, Michael didn't have a Basilisk or anything else to clear out early. He literally just had the Castellan, really. He had a Wyvern, but that's not going to go through two-up armor. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, so we go into it. He seizes on me. 
the Castellan fires. Uh, he does it in the correct order. He fires the plasma first because you want to get the volcano lance into Mortarian after everything else hopefully kills the Terminators. He rolled a little high on the plasma. I think he got eight shots, but then he rolled a little bad on the hit roll. He ended up doing four wounds. The Terminators have a four invul save. So I should save two of them. I have three Terminators. I should still have one alive for the Volcano Lance. Uh, I failed all three saves. Um, or Sorry, I failed three of the four saves. But then still, mathematically, one of them has pretty good odds to make two of the three five-ups and live. Uh, they did not. They each made one of the five-ups. So they each all exactly died. Uh, so then I have nothing left, and Mortarian eats the Missile and the Volcano Lance and did, I think, think 14 wounds he was crippled yes it was exactly 14 because he was exactly on his final damage table he had four wounds remaining i know that for a fact because that ties in later <laughs> so mortarian gets crippled where normally he would probably take five or six wounds and be in a pretty good position um but that wasn't insane that's just one bad save on the terminators uh what ended up getting real insane was turn two or sorry my turn one where Mortarian goes up, uh, he has a unit of 20 conscripts. He has one big unit. Uh, so Mortarian walks up 20 conscripts. Uh, first off, my Nurgle Herald tries to heal him to get him back to second damage table uh, and proceeds to perils on double aces. So <laughs> that didn't happen. So Mortarian is still on final damage table. Uh, Mortarian fails uh, Blades of Putrefaction, so he's not getting his extra mortals. And uh, also on double aces, he perils down to three wounds. And then um, goes into 20 Guardsmen, which is still, he still has 12 attacks effectively. He, I did get Presidents off, so his 12 attacks turned into 21 attacks. And I also had uh, eight of the 20 Zangors coming in from the other side on that same combat because they were going to bog par parts of it on the other side. Uh, so with Mortarian's 21 attacks, plus however many the Nurglings got that are irrelevant, uh, and eight Zangors, I proceeded to not kill 20 Guardsmen, which borders on mathematical impossibility. Like, I could sit here and roll that uh, all night tonight while I'm working and probably not have that happen again. <laughs> like, that's that's very, very, very high odds to kill 20 guardsmen, and it did not happen. Um, and this was relevant because my Bloodthirster was also in that combat and needed all 20 to die so he could get through to the Custodes captain that was behind him, but not... It was, it was less than four inches behind, so I could get into it. Um, so what that ended up costing me was... I had to double fight that turn to get the Custodes Captain, which I ended up not even doing. <laughs> the Bloodthirster did eight wounds to it, and he only failed two of the three ups, and then, I, uh, and then he rerolled one of them, and he only failed one of them. And the, so the Custodes Captain even ended up living after I had to spend three command points. Um, after that, uh, the, I think the next bout of near mathematical impossibility was uh, the one terrible mistake Michael made, and he admits this, uh, he moved up his knight to get the bonus point. The bonus point that round was three characters standing on objectives. His knight is a character. He moved his knight up to get that bonus point. And I still have a Skull Reaver Prince in the midfield. And he told me after the game, he thought he was just on autopilot at that point. He did not believe it was still a close game, and I disagreed. <laughs> so he was kind of on autopilot, moves his knight up, and I got a Skull Reaver Prince into his knight. Uh, the Skull Reaver Prince, if you're not aware of him, does a D6 damage rerolling to wound against Titanic with extra mortals on sixes. So you're basically just going to do 6D6 damage to a knight. Um, I did. I did do 6D6 damage, and I proceeded to roll a 12 on 6D6. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, uh, and I want to clarify, that included a reroll. The original roll was 11, <laughs> and I rerolled a 1 to a 2. 
Um, no, not a single dice was above a four. It was, I believe it was like four ones and four twos and a couple threes or something like that. It was, it was 12 damage on 66. And I want to clarify, the knight had some chip wounds. I needed to do 15. I needed to do 15 damage on 12 D6, and I rolled 12. Uh, so I had to spend another three command points to double fight with that prince to kill the knight. Uh, so I'm basically just playing down six command points that should not have been cost. Um, and then what ended up happening over the final few turns, as we realized that it's still an incredibly close game, was a million different things happened where if I'd had a command point reroll left, the game would have been very different, such as when my final unit of Zangors came in, and they go for their eight-inch Zangor charge, they rolled a six and a one. <laughs> so if, you know, yeah. if I had a command point left right there, I almost, without a doubt, win the game. Mm -hmm. um, I had a, uh, I was trying to get a headhunter point on the final turn. My warpsmith, who hits on twos, rolled a melt-a-gun at a platoon commander, uh, rolled a one. <laughs> so there was a, there was a lot of, uh, if I had a command point left, I'd probably win anyways, which is kind of insane given how the dice went. But, uh, yeah, it's, sometimes that happens. Uh, I was not upset about it at the time. Me and Michael were having a good time. Uh, Michael is on the same team as, uh, as Brandon Grant, so he had walked through the matchup with Grant a few times, I think, about how to play against me. He knew that he wasn't in a great spot. Uh, the dice went his way the entire time. Uh, he rolled a little hot, but it was mostly me rolling super, super bad. <laughs> it sounds like it's one of those games where you know from a decision standpoint you didn't you didn't lose the game because you made bad decisions. It was more the dice just failed you. In yeah, and a lot of times the way I look at it is more of the list didn't fail me. Like, yeah, dice get away from you sometimes, but from where I come away at from it, because I'm always like, oh, what am I going to play for Adepticon? Like, that's always how you're looking when you come away from one of these events. The, the list did not let me down at all. The list played at a level to be the number one seed in the top eight at Vegas. That is what the list did for me. Uh, the dice gets you sometimes. It's a dice game. I always tell people if you're going to be upset about that at the end of the day, you can't play this game. Like if you're right. if you're there at the top table at LVO after five rounds and you're mad, then you you have to find a new hobby. <laughs> like yeah, we we were having a good time. If you think about the mathematics of just the fact that you've got to win six games in a row to be in that final yeah. eight to then win another three games, it's it really is a really huge uphill battle you've got to run to to, to have a chance there yeah i i i was lucky enough i made top eight my first year that i went which was the last of seventh because was like yeah last year was eighth so that was the final of seventh three years ago i made top eight my first year uh with old uh old screamer star and magnus so i my buddy magnus was already there with me um and i played brandon grant in the very first round of top eight that year and I felt like I outplayed him that game. And I talked to him after the game, and he said he had not played Screamer Star much. Apparently not many people on the West Coast have been playing it. I got his, uh, his Wolf Star into an empty quarter where he couldn't hold an objective. We bogged each other, and I was like, great, they're going to be bogged for each game. And then I get to play Magnus versus Fizzle Army. And then turn two, I failed my Grimoire and died. <laughs> like, I was like, I felt like the list did it, and then the dice let you down sometimes. It's just what happens. But over nine games, that's going to happen to most people. So the important thing is to just kind of look for the things you can take away and learn from in those games, right? Exactly. And again, me and, me and Michael talked over the game after. Uh, he knew that he should not have moved his knight up. That was, that was the one big takeaway for him. But other than that, he played, I mean, he had to play great all weekend or he wouldn't have been in that situation. Like you, I always tell people at that level, there's three things you have to have. You have to bring a good enough list to be competitive. You have to be 
a really, really, really good player, and you have to get good matchups. If those three things don't happen, you will not make the top eight. That's, uh, that's some, some good advice there. And, uh... Yeah, and I, I always tell people there's if – you, if you really, really want to talk about the elite top tier of 40K, I always tell people there's maybe 30 people in the country who play at that level, but 25 of them are going to get knocked out either because they have to play against each other or they don't get the matchups they need. Cause again, that's out of your hands. Like Nanavati had to play against the one list there that he knew he had no chance to beat. Like that just happens. Right. So even if you take, Hey, there's 30 elite players in the world and there's only eight spots in the top eight, there's going to be some people who aren't necessarily at that level, but they play good enough and put themselves in the position to get there because there's always space because it is still a game of dice and a game of matchups. Yeah, we were, there were a couple of us actually talking about the fact that if you lose early, you, you're almost essentially in a completely different meta from what's going to probably be up towards the top that you know just from the good players being up there. Um, so that if you planned your army and your list around that certain few set of armies, even if, even if you lose that early game, you're still in a situation where now you're, you're drawing matchups against stuff that is probably much different than what you're geared to face uh, that was kind of like what i what i ended up running into and uh you just <laughs> i think it was I'm, I'm running like five dreadnoughts and i end up playing orcs orcs gene stealers <laughs> from my from my day two and it's kind of like oh you know give me a break here i so. i had the exact opposite happen a couple years ago where uh a guy and it just happens like i always tell people like if there's 600 people at vegas you can kind of just imagine like 10 64 man brackets in your head like it's all random. We don't know what those brackets are going to be, but they kind of hypothetically exist. There's going to be like a 64 man group that don't have any top tier players in it. Like where somebody's just going to get through because of just the randomness of it. But uh, a couple years ago, I played a guy and I think round four or round five, like we're talking about like 400 people have been eliminated at this point. And he was literally playing like a fluffy ultramarines army with like a repulsor and Gilliman and a bunch of Primaris Marines. And this was before any of that was good with the new rules out of Vigilus. Like right. he was just like, he was like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I expected <laughs> to lose in round one so I can go play fun games and get drunk. Like, I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> like it's, it's, it happens at Vegas just because the math is so outrageous when you're dealing with six or 800 people. So that's the point of playing all your games through to conclusion, right? I mean, Oh yeah. You make sure you, you just play them all the way through because you never know. You you might lose that game early, but you might end up, hey, just submarining your way back up and all of a yeah, sudden. Yeah, to be honest, that was me at Nova to a degree. Like, I lost in round – and honestly, you, you sadly can't do that at Vegas because it's impossible to get in with a loss at Vegas anymore. Right. Like, they were going to cut off wherever the losses began regardless. But, yeah, at, at the other tournaments, it's absolutely a thing. I, I had an early loss at Nova, and I ended up making the final game. I lost to a – a towel list with the two forge world flyers which are enormous and i believe cost 80 billion dollars yeah um i i lost to uh, a guy uh brad white out of tennessee who's a super nice guy and i've played him a bunch uh i lost to him in round two or three and then i i played a bunch of off medalists like you're talking about i i think i played sisters of battle the round after that <laughs> and then i played god what did i play in the fifth I don't know. I played two weird lists and got enormous scores out of it, and then I was back in it. And then yeah. I, I ended up being the 16th person for the cutoff. Well, so to, to, to kind of put a bow on the LVO chat here, um, and I've got some questions uh, just to kind of yeah, jump yeah. into 
thousand suns here in a second, but um, to, to put a ball on LBO, what are your thoughts around like what you, you know, like from a meta standpoint, you know, do you, do you think, um, do you think the Knights are headed for like a nerf here soon or just kind of, you, you know, your spider senses and knowing what, what you saw and, and how they, how they uh, performed, do you think we're, uh, we're headed for a very different meta for the, for the first half of 2018, or do you think it's going to pretty much kind of stay like what we saw? Yeah, I don't see. I've, I've actually been softer on the Knights than a lot of people. I think um, again, even like the infinite command points was insane. We all knew that like the Nova thing, like, but again, I was, I, I always tell people I was one eight inch charge away from making that army, even with the infant command points, not win Nova. If I'd made one Zangor charge, I probably win that game. And then the Knights don't even win Nova. Uh, and now, now I've got the secondary to that story, which is, well, if Snyder and me don't have an insane dice game, there's only two night lists in the top eight at Vegas instead of three. And then maybe people aren't complaining quite as much. Um, but yeah, I, I believe the Castellan should go up a mid-level amount of points like 40 ish maybe knock off one guard squad basically i don't want to see like 100 points or something crazy like people are talking um i i think gene stealers will help bring things further away from knights because knights are weak against hordes they just are like a castellan cannot beat hordes it's the guardsmen who have to beat hordes because a castellan puts out like 12 shots a turn like it's it's not a horde answer they 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 don't match up well and to be honest, that was one of the things that probably helped Grant and them at Vegas was Pampreen and Nanavati both got knocked out with the good orc lists. Like, they don't want to play against that, and the matchups just lined up where they realistically didn't have to as much as they maybe would. Um, I don't believe Castellans are in an overwhelming spot. Again, uh, we won't know until after Nova, because that's the next balance round is the post, or sorry, post-Adepticon. Uh, we won't find out till after, because that's the next round of balance. So this is the meta we're stuck with until then for the next big GT. Uh, right. But yeah, I, I think every time a good horde army comes out, it makes knights worst. We just got orcs, and now we have gene stealer cult. Um, it looks like gene stealer cult are going to be a, a huge problem. So I think that might pull us further away from castellans, and then maybe they won't need to be fixed at all. But we'll find out. Because it kind of sounds like they've got tools in the toolbox for pretty much everything, right? Yes, gene stealer cult, uh, and I I'm still behind. I'll admit because I. I specifically did not look at that codex. I put it out of my brain because it wasn't at Vegas. And I was like, I can't think about this right now. This is complicated. Right. Yeah. It looks like they have a little bit of everything. Like people are excited about the like hand flamer bombs and all that and all their psychic power shenanigans. Like we're, we're going to see it at Epticon. Like that'll be the big unveiling of what people have landed on for their competitive lists with that. But I, I think hordes are good for the meta right now because we kind of didn't have them until orcs, but the, the one thing I, I say to go back to the Castellans is what needs to change is the guard. The guard are too efficient for what they do. I would much rather, and I, I lost my mind when Chapter Approved came out and Cultists went up to five and Guardsmen didn't. Like that, yeah. that hurt me personally. Like I was so upset. Like I was telling people like once the Cultist number leaked, I was like, oh, well, if Cultists went up to five, it's probably just because Guardsmen went up to five and they wanted them to be <laughs> equal. And then one went up and the other didn't. And I was like, I don't know what the hell's going on. This makes no sense. But it's just too efficient for what it does. Like it's, it's so easy for them to take a brigade and get no bad choices out of it. Like a, a mortar squad costs like 30 points. And I'm like, can I have one of those? <laughs> like, can I go dump into horrible forge world renegade guard just to get mortar squads, please? Like it's yeah. so amazing. Yeah. Not to get our hopes up over the, uh, the, the, the chaos space Marine stuff that's been leaking, but you know, 
one could dream. You know? Yeah, I know. Like, I, I, I'm concerned about how much, like, all the, the rumors they put about, out about that stuff seem to be focused towards demon summoning, which is other – I know what Josh Death's playing, but I feel like that's not that great of a mechanic right now. Like, the Venom Crawler, it was like, oh, it helps summon demons. And the new character, it was like, oh, he's really good at summoning demons. And I was like, that's great, but that's – I can see it getting interesting if they adopt like the Age of Sigmar pattern, uh, kind of like how they're testing out with Sisters of Battle with their their Act of Faith, kind of like their own point system for it. Where That's so what I've been hoping for. Like we had that yeah. in 7th with the Demonkin and the like skull points and all that, the blood points, whatever they were called. Like I'm hoping that like maybe we'll get like a Slanesh Codex here in a few months or something that'll have something like that, hopefully. Yeah. Well, so kind of taking that and kind of jumping into Thousand Suns, so you know, if you were if you were to put your thousand suns hat on and you're looking at the codex, I know one of the things, um, if we know that hey, hordes are probably going to get a little uptick here. Um, yeah, I, I think I caught some comments about scarab occult terminators and that there's there's possibly some viability there, but you know, right now they might be a little expensive. Um, do you think thousand suns are like um, kind of like Necrons in a way where they're like a tweak away from maybe being that really you know like on their own they can stand and use much more of the codex or do you think they're you know the gaps that are there are you know much bigger um where we're just going to see them what continue to just use their strength which is their their hq units yeah i i again i i like you said in the ama i think people ask this repeatedly and i was mostly they would ask about rubrics and i'd say sorry no rubrics aren't <laughs> until a huge overhaul comes out rubrics are not an option they're just sadly not which is partially because rubrics are bad and it's partially because Zangors are amazing. Like it's, it's just so cut and dry in the troop slot right now, but yes, Scarab occult terminators are so close. And if we keep getting more hordes, I, that's what I told people in the AMA. I was like, if we keep getting more hordes, they might have a chance. Like I, I played a test tournament. Uh, I want to say in November, like it, what I would consider Vegas prep, with 10 Scarab Occult Terminators. Like, I, I was trying it, and that was before the new Bolter rules. Um, the problem is with them is they come down, and wherever they come down, that's where they spend the entire game because of the four-inch move. Like, they're not going to affect the game beyond their 24-inch radius around themselves, but that used to effectively be a 12-inch radius, so it got better. But, yeah, they they shred the hordes. Like, even the, two, the AP2, like, people always talk about, oh, that was for killing marines and like yeah in older editions it was ap3 or whatever and it was made for killing other space marines right now ap2 is the perfect number for killing hordes because that's orcs in cover that's guardsmen on the field like that's a lot of things that normally are getting like a five up against your bolter spam are getting nothing and it's it's good and two up armor is good as hordes come and uh, i think one of the the points i made was uh, for Gene Stiller Cult, it looked like a lot of their close combat is going to be effectively like a heavy bolter stat line, like strength 5 AP1. Right. Uh, well, suddenly, all is dust matters. Like, all is dust is incredible against that, where realistically, we've gotten no value out of that special rule this entire edition. Like, that's actually a valuable special rule if, uh, I, I believe it's Rending Claws have that stat line. It's like plus one strength, AP1, one damage. Um, if, that's a, if that's a big one that they're relying on as a crutch, two up armor like that's horrible for them to have to deal with uh so you i want to go back to something you said um because one of the things um that i've been looking at is the exact same thing between rubrics and scarabacle and the way i've sized it up I'm, I'm interested in you know your opinion on the rubrics because i look at them and i say okay they're 18 points a model 
and they are roughly half the points of a Terminator. So I can get mm -hmm. two rubrics for one Terminator. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, geez, you know, I'm, I've got a little bit better durability because of the guns they're going to shoot at me when mm -hmm. I have, if I have like two rubrics versus one Terminator, because the Terminator has two wounds. But because of all this dust, most, most decent players know, well, I'll just throw some, you know, some plasma or some D3 weapons at them. And, you know, it'll, it, like we know, it just goes right through them. Yeah. Uh, what's your take on that and how that, it sounds like you've kind of, you've kind of sized up the Terminators as a better option. There. The, the one thing for me, and I, I did the exact same comparison, it's, it, and after the changes, it's actually a little more for two rubrics than one Scarab Occult now. I think a Scarab Occult is like 33 now. So it's, yeah, it could be it's, awesome. it's an exact straight comparison though. You're, you're looking at it the right way. It's two wounds versus two wounds. It's four bolter shots versus four bolter shots. Like everything else is equal except the two up armor save versus the three up and two bodies versus one body. The, the one reason I always leaned towards the Scarab Occults in that is I was obviously playing them with one or both Primarchs. So if I can force people to shoot multiple damage weapons at the Scarab Occults, that is gaining me a ton of value in multiple damage weapons not being shot at Magnus or Mortarian. So I always took that as a positive. Like, yeah, multiple damage weapons will shred them, but that's awesome for me. <laughs> please shoot, yes, please yeah. shoot your plasma at my Scarab Occult Terminators. Like, if, if that's, it, it's kind of a, you, you overload, uh, it's not necessarily a threat overload load as a Nanavati would call it. It's more of a, a capability overload. Like, if you only have so many anti-tank weapons available and I only take stuff that you have to kill with anti-tank weapons, you're going to run out of anti-tank weapons. Right. Like it's, it's not as viable as it was in old editions where like you couldn't damage things like on sixes universally, but it's still a, a mechanic that you can use to your advantage. But yeah, I, I actually want them for that. Um, the other thing is the two-up armor is a big deal. And yeah, rubrics do have two-up armor against a lot of things effectively, but I, I really like the two-up armor, especially in cover. The thing that hurts me is, as far as what you asked earlier about, like, how close is the codex to being where it maybe should be, is I, I have no explanation whatsoever for Scarab Occult Terminators having a five-up invul save. That makes me so mad. <laughs> especially then when Death Guard came out and their Terminators have a four-up invul save. It was like, why? Why don't the, the army that is traditionally the, the Chaos God, that is traditionally the invul save one, Zinch, has five up in bull save on their terminators. Right. And then they don't and then the Death Guard get that bodyguard yeah. rule on top yeah. of the Scarabacult, where the Scarabacult have the exact same, you know, if you read the fluff and everything, they have yeah. the exact they're, same. They're they're the first unit terminators. Like they're the right. yeah, they're they do the same thing for Magnus and they just didn't get the rule. The Death Guard the Death Guard book had so much more flavor to it than the Thousand Sons book did. It kind of feels like it's just one of those like faults of coming out early kind of things where Exactly, it, yeah. And and Death Guard this this was the big Mortarian reveal, so they're going to do more for Death Guard and Eighth. whereas, uh, and the one that gets me real mad is the Demon Codex, because traditionally I'm a Demon oh, player, yeah. not a Chaos Space Marine player. The Demon Codex was the laziest hack job I've ever seen at a Games Workshop. <laughs> it was just, we'll copy-paste everything from the old Codex, we'll take out everything that was fun, we'll make sure that no matter what, you cannot reach a 2 up invul save, because we don't want yeah. that to happen again, and then we'll just print it, just send it out. Despite the fact that it did happen again with the Lord of Change. And I know. And then, and then they, they fixed that in the dumbest way possible. Like, instead of just saying, hey, these don't stack, they said, hey, now it's a four-up max, and now, like, Corn can't use it with the Armor of Scorn and all these other unintended consequences, and it just doesn't work for Pink Horrors. Like, that was messy, and I, I have a lot of disagreements there. Yeah, 
at, at least at least when we look at it, it's at least there's the hope that they're they could yeah come we we have pieces like again like our HQ slot is stacked. We have pretty good oh, yeah. psychic powers. Uh, I actually last year at Adepticon, like in a real competitive army, I played a mutilith. Like I I tried to make the mutilith work, and I really 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 wanted him to because I love that concept. Um, the big thing I can't remember what I was concerned about at the time. For some reason. I wanted the plus one AP for my Zangors. And he I, can let you re-roll charges too. So exactly. That's helpful. Yeah, or fight first, which is right. great. Um, right. I, I wanted him for the plus one AP more than anything. Uh, there was some meta reason that I wanted that at the time, but I don't remember what it was. But yeah, the, the re-roll charges is amazing when you're looking at the, the eight-inch uh, Dark Matter Crystal charges and Deep Strike charges. I, I really wanted him to work, but like 150 is still a lot for a, a creature that doesn't do a whole lot in your backfield. Um, there and even was a drop to 125 sounds like it's still kind of out of the room. Yeah, and oh, the other reason I played him was because I was playing Pink Horrors at the time, and mm -hmm. I could get my Pink Horrors to strength six with him, which I thought was hilarious. Um, that was strength six Pink Horror shooting is actually kind of terrifying, but again, it it wasn't the amount of synergy that I needed from him. He's also a big target that just after the Primarchs are dead, they would shoot him. Right. Um, I got a question for you. Mm -hmm. So one of, the, one of the things I've been thinking about is demon princes. The new fly word, the fly keywords came out. And I'm looking at the way you, you did definitely talked about this, where I think a lot of people, and I, and I definitely agree with you here, uh, that people overvalued the demon prince in the Thousand Suns army, um, especially with, if you look at the way they tend to get used, they kind of sit on the back lines. They're mostly casting powers. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's a lot of points for a guy that is just going to sit back there and cast powers, and he's great in combat, but he's not doing anything if he's just standing back there. And one of the things that I've kind of considered, especially when the new fly rules came out, was whether the wings, which is a very expensive upgrade, it's like 24 points, um, and if you're bringing three of them, like, it just jacks the price of those guys up all the time. Um, do you think if you're bringing demon princes that the wings are still a must-take? I, I do think they are. I don't think I would ever play a Demon Prince without wings. Uh, I just go the other direction. I just play a Sorcerer instead of a Demon Prince when I want to save those points. And that's, I, I have not played a Demon Prince since Nova. I only played one at Nova. And I think, I think most of my pre-Nova lists actually did not have a Demon Prince in them either. Um, the, the one big thing other than, yeah, he just stands in your backfield a lot of times casting powers. That, I, I tell people that used to have more value than it did since the Nova FAQ, because we lost Blood Angels Princes. I, I looked at him as like a free safety against Blood Angel Princes. Or, sorry, uh, Blood Angel Princes, Blood Angel Captains. Yeah. Uh, at some point, a Blood Angel Captain was going to come into your backfield. It was going to try to grab Armin or one of your screens or one of your troops, and you needed somebody in your backfield who could fight that. Mm -hmm. Now, Blood Angel Captains are more or less out of the meta. They're at least not everywhere like they were. So having a guy in your backfield who kind of can fight in an emergency isn't as valuable as it was. There are still certain circumstances where that's great, but used to having a guy in your backfield casting powers who was also a close combat monster had value just in either warding off the Blood Angel Captains or killing them when they came, which no longer exists because those models no longer exist. So yeah, I'm, I'm not even putting demon princes in my army lists by default when i like pull up army builder anymore like i just don't do it anymore i just throw in a sorcerer 
And I'm like, yeah, maybe if I have 80 points left over at the end of the day, I'll upgrade him. But I, I don't see it as necessary anymore. Do you, do you ever end up looking at the Terminator sorcerers at all with their familiar and thinking, yeah, that's, that's kind of worth the, the, the little extra points you got to spend to get it? I've, I've tried to fit them in. I do really like the familiar for getting off things like Death Hex or Presence when they're really important. Um, especially because in my, I, so I tried more than I w- normally would in my current army, but my current army ended up so tight on points that I couldn't breathe. So I, it's like 30-ish to upgrade. Um, so I did not have those points. But I tried harder in this army because I do not have access to a third Thousand Suns Psyker. I don't have three in this army, so I can't do the stratagem either. I can't do the plus two to cast stratagem, which is so very important in mirror matches or when you're playing other top end players or particularly against like Eldar or Tyranids. Yeah. I don't have access to that. So yeah, having only one point too. It's, exactly. It's yeah. Having having that extra plus one available when you don't have the plus two from the stratagem seemed super valuable to me. So yeah, I, I love that sorcerer. I could not fit him into this list. But that is something that I put value on because when you're playing the mirror match and you're like trying to get off a death hex on Magnus, right. plus five sounds great. Let's go to plus five. Let's, <laughs> I would make that, that Terminator Sorcerer would always be my Warlord. He would have the plus one from the Warlord trait. He would have the plus one sitting on top. He'd like, let's get all the pluses we can do in here because we need every bit of it. So one last question on Thousand Suns. Um, Zangors. So you... You were pretty clear that the sweet spot for Zangors, for you, is somewhere between the 20 and 25 range. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, like, how you got to that and, like, what that, why it's in that range? Yeah. So, I, I traditionally say 25. Like, that's where I want to be. Um, somebody asked me about it at the AMA, and I told them I, I've honestly just never had the points to go to 30. I probably would go to 30 if I felt like I had the points more frequently. Um, but 25 is where I want to be. I, I haven't done a ton of math behind that. Um, 20, 20 feels like the number I want to get into combat, I'll say. 20 is enough to probably kill 20 or 30 guardsmen. Uh, you might have to double fight. Um, and if you have 25 and lose a few on Overwatch, you still have your 20. It's a number where if you lose 10 it still feels worth it to auto pass the morale. So you don't get a crippled squad because then you still got 15 left. Like it's, again, it's probably not a number I've put a ton of thought into, but I hated playing at 20 Uh, coming away from Vegas. I played 20, 20, 15 at Vegas and I hated it all weekend. (laughs) Like I'm used to not having those numbers and playing at 20 made me wish I had 25 again. I I got by with it uh, mostly because I had, those Terminators hanging out midfield to give some stability to the midfield, which I don't normally have. I, I was learning how to play those Terminators on the fly. But uh, yeah, 25 is where I want to be. 20 is, I guess, what I would now say my new minimum is. And even though I have a unit of 15 in that army, uh, that's just the Dark Matter Crystal unit whose main goal is to kill 10 Guardsmen and wrap something. So that's all you need there. But yeah, I, I wish I could give a more detailed breakdown of why 25 feels like the right number, but that's just always where I've landed. And it, it feels right even after playing with 20. I wish I had 25. Very cool. Um, so are you going to be, uh, you know, for 2019 coming up here, I mean, well, the season's pretty much underway already. Um, are you sticking with Thousand Suns this year or are you going to switch over to something else? 
Uh, no, I've only ever played Chaos. I've been playing for 10 years now. Uh, I always play Chaos. I, I feel like of the Chaos books, Thousand Suns is definitely the most competitive, other than you could maybe do something with pure Death Guard that's really fun, or right. pure Nurgle Demons, of course. Uh, I don't like Nurgle stuff traditionally, other than Mortarian, because he's big and he murders everything. Uh, so yeah, I'll probably... And I, I will add the caveat that some people hit me with in the AMA. This army <laughs> technically has a larger Nurgle detachment than it has a Thousand Suns detachment, but... Yeah. For what I was told for the scoring purposes, I'm still Thousand Sons because they don't allow the mixed soup detachments in uh, Best Coast pairings anymore. Chaos yeah. is not an option anymore. Uh, Nurgle has never been an option. So I'm still technically a Thousand Sons army, even if I keep playing this army. Uh, if I get to the Scarab Cult Terminators, which I might, I'm going to test them before Adepticon. It'll be back to being actual Thousand Sons. But yeah, the the core of the army, in my opinion, will always be Zangors. And I the add-on to that is Zangors and somebody to cast Warp Time, and it just happens that Armin is the best model in the game to cast Warp Time. So as long as those two things remain true, it will always be a primarily Thousand Suns army. So definitely for the foreseeable future, unless this uh, unless this Chaos Space Marine release next month completely blows all of our minds, I'm still right. going to be on Thousand Suns. Uh, yeah, on the on the ITC faction thing, I heard uh, Reese on a I, I think it was the um, uh, Signals from the Frontline podcast that um uh he was talking about the fact that they at least they kind of recognize that um uh, there's there's multiple people that have been bringing that up um and that it sounded like they're with their standardizing the formats they now can actually be looking at stuff and they can they can say okay look we'll just do total detachment points rather okay. than your biggest faction um, that makes sense yeah that would be pretty cool and um, yeah. I think I think they dropped a comment in there as well, whether whether they officially make this happen or not, I don't know. But um, I thought they dropped a comment in there too that that at least sounded interesting to me was that they could potentially be switching to a system where to to win the overall like uh, faction title, you have to have one hundred percent that faction for hmm. your whole, which would be That'd kind be cool. of interesting because yeah. you could. But if you think about it, like if you take your army for instance you'd look at LVO and it would, it would become a very different scenario for you where you're saying, well, if I were to go a hundred percent, hundred percent thousand sons, that might not be my solution for winning the tournament overall. So I could either be looking at like, Hey, I'm going to try to win the tournament overall, or I might be in a position where I'm saying, well, yeah, I might be looking at, I have to run a list that is more for faction overall, which you know, in my mind, actually just kind of shakes things up a little bit. It makes it kind of Yeah, I, I and I know a lot of people who do that. Like, I, uh, my buddy Cameron is always super in on trying to win Harlequins each year. Uh, my buddy Jeremy was, I think, ended up second in Sisters of Battle. He was very invested in trying to win Sisters this year. Uh, I, I like that those faction awards have something out there for people to strive for, especially for the off-meta armies like that. Like, like, he really wants to be the best Sisters of Battle player in the country. Like, nobody's playing Sisters right now. There's not really many people playing pure Harlequins right now. Like, it's it's super fun for the off-meta armies to have a cool award to try for over the course of the year. So, yeah, making it even more locked into the people who actually play those armies would be really, really cool. Ditto. Ditto. Completely agree. Uh, so Justin, I think that, uh, pretty much wraps it up here. Um, thanks again for taking the time for, you know, sitting down, let us, let me just prick your brain and hopefully the, uh, the community gets, uh, some good value out of this and maybe, uh, maybe in the future we'll be able to sit down again. Absolutely. I, I appreciate getting to tell my stories here. I'll, uh, I do apologize for dropping Magnus. I'll try to get him back here soon. 
<laughs> I miss him. Trust me. I miss well, he that man. Did nothing wrong, so I don't he know. Did why. do nothing wrong. It wasn't his fault. He he killed Brandon Grant's night for me at Nova. It's not his fault. He uh, <laughs> I I just as a a a small input here because we did not actually talk about Magnus at all. Uh, I oh yeah. The reason I miss Magnus so much is as much as Mortarian is like a pile of TNT and will just kill everything he touches in the vicinity of I guess forty eight inches or whatever his crazy threat range is. Magnus is a scalpel. Magnus is so valuable against the top players because he will go find one target on the board and remove it reliably virtually anywhere. Like, that's so amazingly powerful against the top players, and that's why I miss him so much because you just warp time Magnus over to any character in the game, and that character is dead. Like, he's going to eat a Mega Smite, maybe a couple more powers, and then get charged, and that character is dead. Um, I've done that to like Abaddon at the height of cultist spam. Oh, well, I'll send Magnus over to get Abaddon and now it's not a problem or like Farseers, Eldrad. Like I, I miss him so much. Just couldn't, couldn't justify him in what I considered the orc meta. But yeah, I, I hope to get back to him someday. Very cool. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed on that one. Absolutely. And yeah, again, I appreciate the invite. Uh, I'll keep you up to date on uh, anything interesting Thousand Suns wise, and uh, hopefully I'll be back on the top with some at least Zangors here at Depticon. Sounds good.